Watcher Ice Coffee listeners. In episode 21, I gave a brief outline of the Japanese period of isolation under the Sokaku foreign relations policy, and mentioned it coming to an end through the gunboat diplomacy of Commodore Matthew Perry. Could I be any more a tool of belligerently self-interested American foreign policy? In the decades that followed, Japan reinvented its military forces, modelling its navy after the Royal Navy, and training its army under French and then German advisers. Japan purchased ships from France and England, and re-equipped the army with arms from Germany. The newly tooled-up Nippon formed imperial ambitions. Japanese covetousness regarding Korea, considered a Chinese vassal state by China, sparked the First Sino-Japanese War, spanning August 1894 to April 1895. Japan forced a Chinese retreat in Korea, took ground in Manchuria, and demanded Taiwan as the spoil of war when China sued for peace. Russia's late 19th century imperial ambitions overlapped with those of Japan in Korea and Manchuria, and the Russo-Japanese war over these areas, mentioned in episodes 35 and 38 as part of Herbert Ponting's background as a photographer and war correspondent, spanned February 1904 to September 1905. Again, the reinvented Japanese forces fought their opponents to absolute defeat, resulting in a peace agreement brokered by Theodore Roosevelt. At the start of the 20th century, Japan, under the Meiji Restoration that ended the Tokagu shogunate's Sokaku policy, stood as a militarily advanced, rapidly industrializing nation. But Lieutenant Nobu Shirase of the Imperial Japanese Army, who grew up reading of the exploits of Franklin in the Arctic and turned down an opportunity to follow his father into the Buddhist priesthood for the sake of a life of adventure in Japan's modern military, worried that the nation was not exhibiting its modernity on the scientific front. Shirase spent two years in the sub-Arctic during an expedition into the Tsushima Island chain, now known as the Kuril Archipelago, north of Japan. Ceded by Russia to Japan in return for Japan giving up claims to Sakhalin, Russia's largest island, in the years before relations with Russia soured to the point of the Russo-Japanese War, the island chain, comprising 50 or so volcanoes, spans the gap between Hokkaido and Kamchatka, ranging from 43 to 50 degrees north. In 1893, as part of a government incentive to dissuade Russian encroachment back into the island chain, Army Lieutenant Naritada Gunji led an expedition north to make preparations for Japanese settlements, with Nobu Shirase as second-in-command of the party. Poorly prepared and badly disorganised, the expedition underwent extreme privations in the northern winter, ten members dying in the harsh conditions. At the resupply rendezvous, Lieutenant Gunji departed to take part in the First Sino-Japanese War, leaving Shirase in charge of a replacement party of five soldiers for a second year among the islands. Three of the five new expedition members died of scurvy during the second northern winter. On returning to Japan, Shirase wrote a bitter public critique of Lieutenant Gunji's incompetent leadership, ascribing the deaths to his poor organisation and inadequate provisioning of the expedition. 
While catastrophic in terms of expedition member deaths, two years in the Kurils made Nobu Shirase Japan's leading expert on living and working in high latitudes, though with Ainu populations in the Kurils regardless of who claimed sovereignty over them, and Russian furriers in Kamchatka all year every year. The lessons learnt could have been garnered by talking to people rather than sending 13 men to their deaths for trial and error empirical testing. Japanese isolationism died hard in some quarters. With his nation catching up on most of the advances associated with what we now call the early modern period, and recognised as a military power to be reckoned with, Shirase saw polar exploration as a means to demonstrate Japanese scientific prowess and exploratory spirit were also up to the highest international standards. Initially looking north to extend his experiences, Cook and Peary's declared conquests of the North Pole in 1909 forced a reassessment. In 1910, Nobu requested government funds and naval support to take an expedition to the Antarctic. The vision of the Japanese imperial flag at the Pole and an expansion of territorial claims into the Southern Hemisphere served to garner a promise of 15,000 yen and a ship. But nothing came of either promise, the government money never materialising and the navy resentfully refusing to release a vessel for what they perceived as an army initiative. The expedition would have remained in Shirase's imagination, but for the intervention of Count Shigenobu Okuma. Count Okuma, left one-legged after a failed assassination attempt, held tremendous prestige in the modernising nation. A young samurai in the mid-19th century, he helped start and sustain the reforms of the Meiji Restoration, and these being successful, took influential government roles in the new order foreign affairs, finances, eventually becoming Prime Minister. Count Okuma formed an Expedition Supporters Association to encourage public subscriptions, helped considerably by the Asahi Newspaper Group, which publicised the project with advertising and articles. Between Okuma's advocacy and Shirase's deals with publications and sponsors, the expedition began to gather momentum, government intransigence bordering on meddlesome interference, and the failure to garner endorsements from scientific and geographic bodies, forced Shirase to make the South Pole the public focus of the expedition. Cecil Mears, on his way to New Zealand with dogs, ponies, his Russian recruits and Scott's brother-in-law, Wilfred Bruce, added his low opinion of the Japanese expedition preparations to the local media, and scientific wariness of the project turned to disdain. Professional scientists saw the voyage as career poison. The only person with any science training whom Shirase could enlist was Earth Sciences teacher Terataru Takeda. Expedition supporter General Tsuchiya Mitsuhara that the scientific community would be so timid as to resist the challenges the expedition posed, declaring that scientists, like soldiers, should be willing to lay down their lives for their work. I don't know any scientists who take this attitude, and even the volcanologists I've met go about the extremely dangerous aspects of their work with a blithe attitude that the fiery death which accounted for so many of their colleagues probably won't happen to them. Similarly, in my own field, no one goes to sea or submerges for a dive 
with anything other than the expectation of a safe return to port or the surface. Risk does exist, but you don't enter the situation expecting to not return. Perhaps it's a Bushido thing that anyone would expect scientists to accept life and death risks with the same discipline and fatalism as we expect of soldiers, but I suspect the Japanese science community's reticence regarding Shirase's project had more to do with political concerns and career prospects than it did with existential dread. Count Okuma bought the expedition vessel, the 204-ton, 30-metre-long fishing schooner, Daini Hoko Maru, from Shirase's former superior officer, Naritada Gunji, who was using it to fish Japan's northern waters. Renamed Kainan Maru, opener up of the south, the small vessel, half the size of the Fram and two-sevenths the size of the Terra Nova, was sheathed with 6mm steel plate reinforced with extra ribs and fitted with an 18-horsepower auxiliary steam engine. Piss weak for ice work even given the small size of the vessel. Fortunately, the size of the Kainan Maru precluded taking bloody Manchurian ponies south. Shirase, like Scott, felt ponies represented the key to Shackleton's attempt on the pole and felt disappointed that he would have to rely on dog power. Lieutenant Albert Armitage's unwarranted enthusiasm for ponies in polar climes did a lot of damage to subsequent expeditions, but the Japanese dodged the impact of his misguided advice by happenstance. Shirase's experiences in the Chishima Islands gave him sufficient insight to bring aboard two Ainu as dog handlers and 30 dogs for them to handle. Besides the dog handlers, no attempt to gain insight from or enlist the experience and skills of other explorers or high-latitude specialists was sought. At an official farewell ceremony attended by tens of thousands of Tokyo residents, the crew, comprising 27 men, swore their southern intentions on a scroll which was then sealed with their blood. Bushido as fuck. The ship didn't leave until the following day, and with 10,000 yen owing for provisions and equipment. Only a few punters saw them off on the 1st of December 1910, which is less Bushido than the whole scroll and blood deal in front of a large crowd, but a start nonetheless. A very late start in terms of Antarctic exploration. The ship made slow progress south in bad weather, arriving without prior notice in Wellington, New Zealand, on the 7th of February 1911, all the dogs having died during the transit. The lateness in the Antarctic exploration season, the smallness of the ship, and the apparent poor preparations for ice work, combined with recent displays of Japanese imperialism, also combined with local racist sentiments, to produce rumours that the visit constituted a spy mission. Language barriers didn't help enhance their standing with the locals. The New Zealand newspapers characterised the Japanese as barbaric guerrillas with no business in the South. While the racial slurs were unwarranted, the criticism of the preparations were apt. New Zealand, having hosted both well and poorly prepared Antarctic expeditions and supplied crew to both types of project, boasted enough expertise for valid criticism of Shirase's efforts to come to the fore. The Japanese explorers, heeding this, sought out every skerrick of information regarding Antarctica they could find in local bookshops, and scoured the newspapers for articles about Scott, 
Amundsen and Filchner's concurrent efforts for any insights these might provide. By the time the Kainan Maru departed on the 11th of February, the New Zealand attitude had softened, in part from the show of sincere alarm the Japanese gave in light of their shortcomings in terms of preparedness and the lateness of their gambit, and in part helped by money handed over into local coffers for provisions. While the newspapers still thought the Japanese expedition misguided, they at least wished them well in their voyage. The Japanese expedition encountered and captured their first penguin on the 17th of February and saw their first iceberg on the 26th. The 18 horsepower steam engine did help them through the pack, but it was slow going and they only sighted Victoria land on the 6th of March. The Ross Sea began to freeze over on the 9th of March. By the 12th, the sea ice grew thick enough to pose a risk of freezing the Kainan Maru in for the winter, something the crew were unlikely to weather well. Having reached 74 degrees 16 minutes south, just past Coolman Island, the Kainan Maru turned north, heading for Australia, reaching Sydney on the 1st of May. The reception was slightly warmer than that granted in New Zealand. After customs officials got over their qualms about the visitors, this was a decade after the Immigration Restriction Bill kicked off the 70-year-long White Australia policy. The Harbour Authority waived the usual fees, and a resident of Parsley Bay in the Nobby Sydney suburb of Valcluse gave them use of their mooring and space on their property to erect their hut and tents to camp for the austral winter. The newspapers were still full of scorn, deriding their late start and 15 degree shortfall on Shackleton's southernmost record. With Amundsen, Scott and Filchner staying below the circle for the winter, there was nothing else to compare them to. The Kainan Maru went to Jubilee Dock in Balmain for repairs, while Captain Namura travelled to Japan to outline the results of the first southern foray and their plans to make a second journey south with a possible attempt on the pole in February 1912. Count Okuma made appeals for more funds to support the second season in Antarctic waters, citing the need to maintain national face in light of any achievements arising from the British, German and Norwegian expeditions. With funds on site short, the Japanese expeditioners spent a fairly miserable winter in Sydney, in Shirase's words, reduced to a beggar's life. Australian military officers from the nearby fort at South Head expressed concerns about espionage but the newspapers and locals mostly considered the expeditioners a distraction. Tanit William Edgeworth David, Professor of Geology at the University of Sydney, Trustee of the Australian Museum, and already a notable iced coffee regular, passingly familiar with Japanese culture from visits to the Japanese consulate, and well familiar with the rigours of Antarctic work from his time in the south with Shackleton, championed the Japanese expedition against racial slurs and suspicions of spying, and applauded their ambitions below the circle. Professor David invited the leaders of the Japanese expedition to attend his fundraising lectures for Douglas Mawson's proposed expedition, and ensured the rest of the audience were aware of their presence and his high regard for their mettle. While largely only known in geological circles and among Antarctic enthusiasts in present-day Australia, Edgeworth David was well known and highly influential in Australian society a century ago and his advocacy did as much for the Japanese expedition's public profile as his mentorship did for its scientific program. 
the Japanese camp became a weekend destination for Sydney-siders, and their scientific contingent learnt how best to align their measurement series with those of past and present expeditions, and how to approach many aspects of Antarctic operations Shirase's experiences in the Tsushima Island could not prepare them for. In Japan, Count Okuma's support organisation sought further funding, lecturing extensively on the need to demonstrate the nation's modernity in all contexts, criticising the government for the broken promises of support and giving the geographic and scientific bodies, which withheld their stamps of approval, a caning for their lack of vision. For the sake of national honour, the expedition must not be allowed to founder, figuratively, before their essential work could be completed. As with so many other expeditions, national pride proved the driver more so than scientific research and its knock-ons. Okuma posed the promise of rich fisheries to supersede the diminishing returns coming to port from Japan's northern maritime provinces, and posed the price tag of 70,000 yen as chump change in return for food security he couldn't have known for sure lay in the offing, but which actually did serve his nation well in the medium run and turned the Japanese fishing fleet into international pariahs in the long run. Captain Nomura returned from Japan in October with the go-ahead from Count Okuma, some provisions from home, and a cinematographer from M. Pate, and a second scientician in the form of Masakichi Aikida and his degree in agricultural science. Sick crew were put ashore and new dogs were shipped. The Royal Society of New South Wales held a farewell dinner for the expedition on the 10th of November 1911, with many toasts for the Japanese expedition leaders. On the 19th of November, Edgeworth David and Douglas Mawson went aboard the Kainan Maru to farewell Lieutenant Shirase and his team. In gratitude for his generosity, advocacy and mentorship, Lieutenant Shirase presented the professor with a 350-year-old samurai sword itself a gift to the expedition from Count Okuma. Such swords, rare in themselves, were never previously presented to anyone outside of Japanese nationals, and the gesture speaks as much to the esteem in which the Japanese visitors held the professor as did the lieutenant's letter of thanks. Dear Sir, As you are aware, we are leaving Sydney tomorrow on our journey to Antarctica but we cannot go without expressing our heartfelt thanks to you for your many kindnesses and courtesies to us during our enforced stay in this port. When we first arrived at Sydney, we were in a state of considerable disappointment in consequence of the partial and temporary failure of our endeavour. To add to this, we found ourselves, and in some quarters, subjected to a degree of suspicion as to our bona fides, which was as unexpected as it was unworthy. At this juncture, you, dear sir, came forward, and after satisfying yourself by independent inquiry and investigation of the true nature of our enterprise, which no one in the world at the present day is better able to do, you were good enough to set the seal of your magnificent reputation upon our bona fides, and to treat us as brothers in the realm of science. That we did not accept all of your kind offers to bring us into public notice was not from any lack of appreciation of the honour you desired to do us, but we felt there was a danger that your generosity and magnanimity might unwillingly place us in a position to which we could only regard ourselves as entitled when our efforts should have been crowned with success. 
Whatever may be the fate of our enterprise, we shall never forget you. We are, dear sir, yours most sincerely. Signed, Nobu Shirase, Commander, Nakichi Nomura, Captain of the Kainan Maru, Teretaro Takeda, Scientist, Masakichi Aikida, Scientist, Seitsu Miishi, Physician. The Kainan Maru headed south again, this time with a far better idea of what challenges the Antarctic would pose them and a full complement of sledge dogs. Realising that with no depot journeys the previous summer, their chances of reaching the pole were nil, and that at least one of Scott or Amundsen's far better prepared attempts on that geographic first were likely to precede them, the Japanese expedition focused on oceanographic, geographic and meteorological characterisation of coastal regions, and headed to the Ross Sea intent on surveying areas not yet examined. Out of deference to the ambitions of Douglas Mawson, protégé of the expedition's fortuitously encountered benefactor, Edgeworth David, Shirase excluded the coast to the west of Cape Adair from his plans. With Scott definitely based in McMurdo Sound and Amundsen in Balloon Bight, his sights were forced eastward to King Edward VII land, sighted a decade earlier but never yet landed on. The Kainan Maru traversed the early season pack ice belt and reached open water in the Ross Sea, and by the 3rd of January 1912, sighted the Admiralty Mountains of Victoria Land once more. Heading east for King Edward VII Land, they reached the barrier on the 16th of January. The crew shot, stabbed or clubbed to death every bird and seal they encountered, but realised they weren't the apex predators in the region when the Kainan Maru, the smallest ship to approach Antarctica since the sealing boom, fell under attack by a pod of killer whales. The steel sheathing, in place to protect the hull from ice damage, stood up to the whale's blows and the orca gave up, but the experience gave the crew an unpleasant shock, particularly the two Ainu dog drivers, who considered the encounter portentous. An embayment in the barrier, which they named Kainan Bay, offered a path onto the ice plains, but heavy crevassing indicated against making this their base of operations. Following the barrier west, they met with another ship. The first thoughts of piracy gave way to relief as the Norwegian flag on the masthead revealed this as the Fram. The Kainan Maru anchored in the Bay of Wales and the crew began unloading stores, cutting steps up the barrier face and alarming the denizens of Amundsen's base camp with the brutal manner in which they killed every example of local wildlife they encountered. Most expeditions of the heroic era took advantage of the large reserves of protein, carbs and lipids on offer in seal and penguin form on the Antarctic coast, but it seems the Japanese could match and even outdo the crew of the Scotia in terms of the casual brutality of their bloody encounters with the locals. The language barrier between the Japanese and Norwegians precluded much interaction beyond smile and wave, and the two groups, heartened by the presence of other people and a second ship in this remote realm, otherwise had little to do with one another. The Japanese path onto the barrier, a zigzag route cut into the 90 metre high wall of ice, required heavy work for all hands over three days, this period being noted in the report 
as the most difficult part of the expedition. A landing party of seven, led by Shirase, made a base camp near the Ice Edge and the Kainan Maru headed east along the barrier to see if a party might similarly go ashore on King Edward VII land. With just weeks in hand before the ship returned, Shirase, no longer holding any ambitions for the pole, led a party of five southeast on the 20th of January, keeping clear of the path already trod by the Norwegian Polar Party to the south, covering as much ground as the time allowed. Named the Dash Patrol, this party crossed the landmass we now know as Roosevelt Island, confirming it as an island and not, as previously suspected, the eastern margin of the Ross Sea. The dogs, under the reins of the Ainu dog handlers, pulled well and by the 28th of January they covered 130 nautical miles, reaching 80 degrees 5 minutes south. This distance is impressive given the storms that pinned them down regularly, temperatures down to negative 25 degrees Celsius and the complete inexperience of two of the team in polar conditions. Also against them was that no one in the dash patrol had seen skis before, let alone trained in their use. The Japanese recount amazement over the Norwegians' snowshoes comprising long, narrow boards of wood. The dash patrol covered the ground it did entirely on dog power. One thing to keep in mind before contrasting the distance covered by the dash patrol and the distances covered in equivalent time by contemporary expeditions is that the dash patrol was exactly that an out-and-back stab into the interior, with no depoting or relaying. To double the distance that the Japanese covered would have required a trebling of the loads and a resulting diminishing return distance per day. But even with that said, the Dash Patrol made an impressive effort given the challenges they faced. They buried some paperwork documenting their exploits and listing the expedition sponsors in a copper box, planted a flag, gave three hearty bonsais and claimed the area in the name of Japan using the title Yamato Setsugan, the Japan Snowplane. Their dash done, they headed back to their colleagues, left taking meteorological measurements on the barrier edge. Meanwhile, the Kainan Maru was sailing east, reaching as far as 155 degrees west. A party landed on King Edward VII land, becoming the first people to set foot on that coast after having climbed the ice barrier to gain access. Two members of the party climbed the Alexandra Mountains, the furthest point sighted by Scott in his balloon ascent, and from their vantage point saw more mountains extending to the south-southeast. This observation confirmed King Edward VII land as marking the eastern limit of the barrier, rather than an island protruding through it. The two mountaineers deposited a message board noting their visit and returned to the ship. On the 29th of January, the westernmost margin of King Edward VII land, the easternmost edge of the barrier Ross discovered 70 years prior, came to light. Naming the confluence of rock and ice Murakami Inlet after an expedition patron, this was later changed to Okuma Bay, the explorers put out a boat to collect mud and rock samples from the icebergs, offering insights into the geology of the distant land over which the glaciers comprising the ice barrier once rode. Icebergs are always perilous to boat traffic, and one in Okuma Bay gave the crew a scare 
capsizing as it melted clear of the obstruction on which it lay grounded, throwing the small boat about in the resulting wash. The Kainan Maru sailed back to the Bay of Wales, but in their absence, the fast sea ice broke up. Drifting flows and poor weather prevented the ship from approaching the barrier, and the dash patrol could do nothing but bide their time on the barrier edge. The seven men transferred to the ship over two days of slightly better weather, but twenty dogs were left behind, chasing after the departing ship as much as the barrier allowed, and howling their despair as the Kainan Maru headed north on the 3rd of February. I sometimes ponder the fate of these animals. If they could access penguins, they might have stayed alive long enough to freeze to death in the winter. If they found a penguin rookery, they might even survive the long austral dark. Would 20 dogs constitute enough genetic diversity to dodge the inbreeding problems of a bottleneck population? Well, if they were from the same breeding stock, probably not. That we know of no wild dog packs along that part of the Antarctic coast is a good indicator that something knocked them all on the head. The Kainan Maru headed north, calling in at Wellington en route to a hero's welcome in Japan on the 20th of June, 1912. A parade, an imperial audience, at which the Emperor made a token donation to the expedition coffers, and telegrams of congratulations greeted the returning Antarcticans. Shirase called on the government to officially claim the area of the Ross Sea on which he raised the Japanese flag, but received no official interest in an annexation of an ice shelf. The footage of the second season in the ice screened around Japan and China, bringing in tens of thousands of yen for M. Pave films. But Shirase, having sold the moving picture rights for a fixed sum, was left saddled with the expedition debts of 53,000 yen. Perhaps the government might have stepped in, as happened for Shackleton's debts, but Emperor Meiji died shortly after receiving Shirase, and the period of national mourning took the wind out of Japanese enthusiasm for the returned explorers. Shirase couldn't pay the crew the money he owed them. The sale of the Kainan Maru, back to its previous owner, Naratata Gunji, who returned to fishing in the northern waters, recovered some of the shortfall, and Shirase sold his home in Tokyo to take care of another chunk, but the outstanding amount plagued him. Ambitions for a further two years of southern exploration came to nothing, as the national interest in Shirase's project proved to be a flash in the pan. Five years spent touring and lecturing on Antarctica still didn't cover Shirase's debts. He spent three years farming foxes for the fur trade in the Kuril Islands, putting his profits towards honouring his debts. He returned to Japan and spent 15 years living frugally, putting what money he could to squaring the ledger. In 1933, with waxing Japanese interest in Southern Ocean whaling, Shirase received an appointment as Honorary President of the newly instituted Japanese Polar Research Institute. But this position didn't come with any government funding assistance, and Shirase continued paying off the last of the money for another two years. Nobu Shirase died in 1946. The rock samples collected by the Japanese expedition demonstrated that King Edward VII land had origins distinct from, and earlier than, those of Victoria Land. Samples sent to Edgeworth David 
informed analyses the professor incorporated into a report on findings from his work in McMurdo Sound and Victoria Land. But this is the most light the Japanese expedition scientific work received outside of Japan for a long time. Masakichi Aikida made a map of the Japanese and Norwegian findings. This made note of Murakami Inlet and named two mountains in King Edward VII land, Mount Nobu and Mount Okuma. Secretary Scott Kelty received the map on the behalf of the Royal Geographic Society without enthusiasm, filing it in the archives. Sir Clements Markham, no longer in power but still influential in the RGS, insisted that the Japanese names not appear on British-published maps and charts, feeling that the Japanese incursion south might detract from public acclaim he saw as rightfully belonging to his golden child, Robert Falcon Scott. These cursed gadflies are lowering the whole plane of polar exploration into a scramble for self-advertising and plastering names about where they are not wanted. What a fucking pissant that man was. Kelty helped stymie a paper by Aikida from publication in a British scientific journal and, with that, the Royal Geographic Society snubbing of the Japanese expedition was complete. The full findings of the expedition received little attention. Much of the data collected was not analysed at the time, only published as report appendices. Some of this data was resurrected in analyses in the 1950s and written up for Japanese research journals. A Norwegian whaler published a translation of parts of Shirase's report in 1933, but a full translation only went to press almost a century after the Kainan Marus returned to Japan. Shirase's personal account of the voyage is yet to be translated. Edgeworth David's daughter, Mary, sent the samurai sword gifted to her father to Japan for restoration before donating it to the Australian Museum in 1979. It forms part of a display about the Shirase expedition and its time in Sydney. A statue of Japan's first Antarctic explorer was erected in his hometown of Nikaho in 1981, and a museum, curating objects from and recounting the story of the expedition, opened there in 1990. Japan's Maritime Self-Defence Force operates an icebreaker named Shirase, celebrating the leader of the nation's first Antarctic expedition. It's a nice touch to give someone who worked so hard to realise their vision for placing Japan among the scientific elite after centuries of isolation, recognition in these ways. But Nobu Shirase could have done with more of that love while he was alive. Laughed at when he tried to get his project moving, called a gorilla by his New Zealand hosts, applauded on his homecoming and then left to carry the can for 22 years. Nobu Shirase got chumped by history. Monuments and museums and names on maps and ships are nice, but you can't eat them 80 years ago. This episode, I'm going to thank Miles for his role in my life because he's piss funny and an 11-year-old example of all that's best in humanity. Cheers. Take care and appreciate your coffee.